You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I've been uh, traveling all over the country and I apologize for not having you a podcast last week. We had some things lined up that uh, ultimately fell through and uh, I, I've been gone so much uh, in October. I didn't have a chance to to sit down and record anything. So my apologies. Um, I was uh, <laughs> in getting a little uh, disoriented. You know, you, you see those... Uh, those rock stars or politicians stand up and they they start to talk about a city, you know, hey, we love you, Minneapolis. And then it winds up, you know, they're in Kansas City. Minneapolis was last night or whatever. Uh <laughs> I'm not quite that bad. I've I've I'm not a rock star and I'm I'm not a, a politician. But I have felt a little bit of that disorientation uh where you very quickly move from one place to another to another to another. And it's been wonderful. I mean uh, just a report from the road. Uh, the 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 audiences, the crowds are bigger than ever. Uh, I feel like we're reaching more people than ever. Uh, the questions that we're getting, uh, the interactions we're having, uh, the level of sophistication of the conversation is all growing uh, exponentially. And so, you know, there's a there's a ton of success, and I'm enthused. Um, but at times, it gets a little, <laughs> it wears wears you down a little bit. Um, welcome to November. Uh, this is, uh, going to be the election week this week. I will be gone. I've already voted. Um, I will be in Nova Scotia, Canada in Halifax, actually. So I will be out of the country on election day. Uh, I'm going to be there this week. And then next week I am going to Texas again. Uh, and then I'm pretty much done with travel for the rest of the year. So uh, a couple more weeks on the road, and then, I mean, I can, I can see, like, the home stretch here uh, kind of winding things down. Um, but I'm looking, forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to both of those uh, trips, Halifax and, and then Texas, to close out the year. Um, a couple of weeks ago, well, before I do that, let me just preview one quick thing. Um, this is November. In November, we do our uh, annual member drive. This is not our member drive week. Although if you want to go become a member today, that would be awesome. Uh, strongtowns.org. Click on the link right at the top. You can't miss it. Um, I just want to preview that here in the next uh, week or so, we're going to start hitting you with a, a week of member drive stuff. Uh, hope to make that interesting and exciting uh, as usual. But, um, you know, want you to be aware of it so you're starting to think about it, starting to kind of prime your brain to, uh, hey... I love this podcast. I love what these guys are doing. I think this message is really important. I think it needs to get in front of more people. It's now my turn to go become a member. We're going to be making that ask big time here in the very near future. Just be aware. Uh, the last podcast we did uh, was about Carmel, Indiana. And I had Aaron Wren on, who I think acquitted himself quite well, You know, did a very good job of, uh, of explaining things from what I think you'd say is a, a, a pro-Carmel perspective. Um, a lot of you, <laughs> I heard from many of you after that, uh, that were angry with me for essentially not challenging him. And I'm like, okay, look, you've been here long enough. You know I'm a Minnesotan. I'm, I'm not like in people's faces. I mean, the whole reason I had him on was to get his perspective, uh, not to fight with him or beat him up. I felt I learned a lot. I felt I got a pretty good perspective. I, I felt I had a better understanding of Carmel at the end than I did going in. So I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. That was hope. You know, those of you that were hoping it would be a brawl, uh, it would be one of these kind of slugfests, and I would, you know, go after him and grab him by the rhetorical throat and squeeze. It's just not me. It's not what I do. I, I remember a few, a few years ago. Um, when Tim Pawlenty was running for president, Tim Pawlenty being our former governor, and he had an opportunity to, and I, I think it was with Rick Perry in Texas, he had, Pawlenty had made some snide comment about Rick Perry at some point, some kind of below the belt kind of thing. 
And uh, they were in a debate and he had the opportunity to basically say it to your face, you know, step up and be a man, say it to his face. And then he wouldn't do it. And I'm like, of course he wouldn't do it. He's culturally prohibited from doing it. That's not the way we do things in Minnesota. And, you know, it, it seemed very common sense to me. Um, to the rest of the country, it was, you know, a sign of weakness. And so, you know, Palenti didn't get very far, probably rightly so. But um, needless to say, for a fellow Minnesotan, his <laughs> I, I didn't appreciate his kind of low blow earlier and then afterwards didn't... Uh, you know, totally understood why he he um, <laughs> uh, didn't act like a man and bring it on. Um, so anyway, just understand the the context of which I come from. Uh, I wanted to go back, and I I did hear from some people actually from Carmel, uh, and actually you know even some people who are part of the government. We've got a, a number of members in Carmel, people who really like strong towns, who thanked me for the podcast and said it was great, and we're glad for a full airing. I don't want to disappoint them uh, today, but I, I am going to kind of go back and give you uh, my thoughts on Carmel. Um, I, you know, I, I, this is not um, a debate. I, I mean, I said that with, with Aaron. This is, you know, I didn't have him on to debate. I had him on to learn, really, and to get some information. And I, I'm going to give you my thoughts on Carmel, which if you're looking for me to, like, bash them uh, mercilessly, um, you're probably going to be disappointed. If you're looking for me to like stand up and defend them, you will definitely be disappointed. I have a lot of deep concerns about Carmel and really some reasons why. And as, as Aaron said, they're the anti-strong town. I totally agree with that. I think Carmel is not a strong town. I actually think in many ways they are the anti-strong town. I'm going to go through, I've got this long list of questions here that I had set up for Aaron. We only got through a few. But I'm gonna. I, I highlighted um, four different things here to talk about that that kind of get to what my concerns are about what is going on in Carmel and the Carmel development pattern. And the first one, it, it gets to just the absolute heart of what it means to build a strong town. That's this: how will you know if you're wrong? And not only how will you know if you're wrong, but when will you know? Aaron described the development pattern of Carmel as being in a sense, uh, an attempt to envision what the kind of perfect build-out condition would be, and then to put all of the things in place, from the public amenities uh, to the kind of infrastructure and transportation systems uh, to the you know great public buildings and public spaces and all the parks and all the things you put, to, to, to put these all together as kind of an upfront ante that will get you ultimately to this place of, uh, you know, perfect build out. And, and I think Aaron stopped short of calling it, you know, a utopian vision. I, he, he didn't say that. I'm going to resist going that far as well. But the idea being like, we're going to make these billion dollar bets um, on this vision that we have today of what this place will look like in the future. And that is what's going to drive the development, essentially backfill the private sector investment that is going to be needed to make all of these upfront bets successful. And I asked the question, how will you know if you're wrong? And, and not only how will you know, but when will you know? When will this become apparent? And I, I think the biggest problem that I have with Carmel is just the go for broke mentality. Listen, I feel like I'm a rather intelligent person. Um, I know a lot of people in the new urbanism who are great designers and genius landscape architects. I know a lot of engineers and planners who I think are really, really bright people. I know a lot of mayors who I think are fantastically intelligent people with great visions of leadership for the future. I can guarantee you that almost all of them are wrong. Almost all of them are wrong, including myself, about what we think the next decade, the next two decades, the next three decades are going to bring. If we look back, and there have been some pretty good, um, pretty good documentation of this. I think Jim Kunstler's done probably the most scathing uh, documentation. Uh, but there have been others who have done this in even a more serious way have gone back and said, here's what people thought in the past uh, 
was going to be like today. If we go back and look in the 1960s, here's what they said the 1980s would be like. If we go back to the 1980s, here's as they say the 2000s were like. If we go back to you know the the mid 90s when I was uh, graduating from college and say what what's life going to be like in 2020, um, here's what they said at the time. And when we look at that, it is patently ridiculous today. It's it's absurd. It is absolutely a, a, a folly. It's it's absolutely absurd. Everything from like Jetsons space cars uh, to, you know, just, just like loony stuff that today we look at and like, oh, how could anybody think that? And I'm, I'm going to give you what my favorite example is. I've been riffing on this one lately in some writing that I've been doing. Um, John Maynard Keynes, when he wrote his, uh, his, his tome uh, back, you know, in the, in the Great Depression, uh, his kind of theory of general economics, he, he, he's, he said as part of this ongoing dialogue that he thought at some point in the future, uh, economists would be so successful. We would have so uh, figured out the business cycle, uh, counter-recessionary uh, kind of active management we could do of the economy. Uh, and our economy would become so successful and prosperous that people would hardly work at all. Um, you know, we, we, people would only need to work a, a little bit every week. I mean, a dozen hours, 15 hours. They, they, could, they could pick what they wanted to do. There'd be a lot more leisure time. Uh, in, in his eyes, the, uh, the economic management of the economy would become more of like, I don't know, a maintenance kind of thing like sweeping the floors, right? These levers and dials where you just fine tune them and they, and they just, you know, uh, you only had to just kind of tweak it a little bit here and there to keep this general prosperity going. One, one of the best quotes is, you know, at something along the lines of, our uh, corporations uh, would start to function like universities, basically be about, the public good and exploration and, you know, building intellect and that kind of thing. And, you know, it's been, it's been stated in response to this, like, you know, what's happened is our universities have become, it's not that our corporations have become like universities, our universities have now become like corporations, uh, you know, out for profit, uh, out for the bottom line, not really worried about the, uh, the, you know, the health of students, debt, debt laden students coming out of school and their future prospects. Yeah, universities become a lot like corporations. If if you look at that, was John Maynard Keynes dumb? No, he was probably one of the greatest geniuses of his gen- generation. Were his insights, uh, you know, absolutely spot on? Yes, he, he I think in his writings revealed things uh, that people were blind to at the time, and 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 I think, you know, rightfully so, he is going to be long remembered for you know the 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 great intellectual heavy lifting that he did. Was he right about the future? No, he was absolutely wrong. He had, he had actually no clue. He had no idea. And he has proven to be wrong uh, over and over and over on a great many things, including on some of his central theories and the way they would interact with complex human society. I, I feel like the hubris involved in a project like Carmel, um, in, in some ways it feels good to us from a psychological standpoint you put you know two people on a podium running for office and you know one is the uh the the bold mayor who says you know here's my vision i'm laying this out we can accomplish this all we got to do is is uh you know uh, i was going to say sacrifice <laughs> uh not sacrifice today risk take on risk uh today uh, borrow money and and two other things that you know may force people in the future to sacrifice. Um, you know, all we have to do is enjoy the the fruits of this uh, these good investments today. We'll build these wonderful things that we'll get to enjoy, and we'll justify those things by uh, these projections of what things will be like when it's built out, and we'll have the tax base and the 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 people here to support this all and keep it going. You got that person standing on a podium, and then next to them, you've got you know the strong townsperson saying, "Well, I'm not exactly sure. I I don't know what the future is going to bring." And I think you know, like your Sunday school teacher said, you know, or like your accountant would tell you, we need to be kind of prudent here and take some small steps and try things out and and scale you know uh, what works. We're really kind of 
taking some leaps in the dark and then we should, you know, watch where we leap. Which person do we, would we as just culturally want to embrace? Not the strong towns thinker, right? So I get that. Like I get the allure of the bold vision. Like I totally do. That doesn't make it any more coherent. And that doesn't make it like defy history of the, you know, the history of bold visions. But Chuck, you know, isn't, isn't America a bold vision? Isn't, isn't all this built on bold visions? Yeah, totally. Like I, I'm, I, if you ask me to like lay out a bold vision for the future, I, I would lay it out. I, I would give it to you. Like I have beautiful dreams for what my city can become, what my state can become, what this country can become. I, I have beautiful dreams for that. I just don't think that I am willing to bet everything on my bold dream. Right? Like, I'm not willing to bet my kids' future, my grandkids' future. I'm not willing to borrow insane amounts of money. I'm not willing to do all those things on the, on the guise that I can force my way to being right. And I think it's particularly problematic. And, and, and let me just, you know, this is, my, this is my other big, like, big, deep concern with the idea of, you know, how will you know when you're wrong? Any development strategy any life strategy, <laughs> you know, any strategy of any sort that gives you all the benefits today in the hopes that like something, uh, you know, resembling a sacrifice or a difficulty or whatever will happen in the distant future. To me, I think you just have to be suspect of, right? I, I think you have to stand back and say, that's incoherent with like human, uh, you know, <laughs> human nature. That's not how humans work. The way humans work, and, and I think it would have like far more credibility to me if the people of Carmel said, you know what, uh, here's our vision for the future. We're all in with this. We think this is great. And because of this vision, we're going to triple our taxes. We're going to invest this money in the future of our community. We're going to sacrifice today so that tomorrow can be a much better place. That to me would have far more credibility. Like I would be here saying, okay, you know, I may not do it this way, but you got some skin in the game. Like I, I, I can buy into that. Instead, it's the opposite that's happening. We are going to borrow incredible sums of money today. We're going to use essentially our, you know, our, our, our community wealth and, and, you know, the capacity that we have to kind of project out in the future, as well as these delusional credit markets that are willing to borrow insolvent governments, you know, bizarre amounts of money at really low interest. We're going to use that system to uh, build all of the goodies today, all of the things that we like and enjoy and want to live with and, and think would be wonderful to have performing arts centers, uh, you know, really nice town squares, roundabouts, every place spread out infrastructure. We're going to, we're going to, you know, build all these things and do all this stuff today with borrowed money because someday, uh, we think that this will lead to a build out condition that is going to be better off. I, I just feel like that's way too affirming, right? It's a little bit like, um, and I'll, I'll go back to the, uh, the, you know, the university analogy. It's a little bit like the university student uh, presented with the ability to borrow, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, saying, I'm going to do that and I'm going to go, you know, stay in a really nice place, really nice dorm, and I'm going to eat out a lot and I'm going to enjoy like a really high quality of life uh, with this borrowed money today because you know what, someday in the future, uh, I'm going to have a really great job and I'm going to be able to pay this back and it's not going to be that painful to do. And then, of course, they graduate. They have huge amounts of debt. Those things kind of look silly, uh, and they're forced to make a ton of sacrifice. Um, I think what Carmel's doing is that like, on steroids. And I, I, I feel like they've got it backward. They've got the incentives all screwed up. I also have a, a problem in this idea of like, how will you know you're wrong? And, and this kind of gets to like the core of the Strong Towns message. This idea of things being, you know, built out. Uh, Aaron brought this up a, a number of times. He said, you know, when they get to build out or they're trying to get to build out like this. And, and I, I find, and, and this is a criticism of all suburban development. This is not unique to Carmel. I think Carmel's just up the ante with, you know, the way, the way that they've gone about this. The idea that development can be finished, 
you know, like, like we can reach essentially a static state where, you know, things are done, things are complete. And, and I'm going to, you know, my fourth point here, Aaron did bring up, you know, can karma reinvent itself? And that's, that's one I want to get to here towards the end. But I, I think this idea of build out is flawed. And again, it gets into this kind of, you know, chicken and egg, which comes first. Do all the goodies come first or does the sacrifice come first? And I, I think this notion of, you know, the, 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 the idea that we're creating something that will ultimately be finished is a level of hubris that only modern Americans have ever had. We can go back through all of human history and you don't see any city anywhere where the thought was, we build it and then we are done. We build it and then it is complete. It's always a work in progress. And there's this great quote that's going around. I'm, I'm, I, I don't have it in front of me because it just came to my brain. Uh, it's from the Talmud, and I'm not someone who's well-read on the Talmud. I apologize for that. Um, and I don't even know the, the quote exactly, but the gist of it is along the lines of like, you, you, you can't, uh, you know, you, you can't shun your responsibility to, to do the work of today, but you don't, have to, you, you don't have to feel like you have to finish it, right? You don't have to feel like at the end of the day, you have to leave things complete. Um, I apologize to my Jewish listeners who I'm butchering your sacred book. I, 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 huge amount of reverence, I apologize. I, I'm trying to get to this notion that, you know, we do have to toil, and we do have to sacrifice, and we do have to do difficult things, and we should have a grand vision of the future that we're working towards. I totally agree with that. Um, but the notion that we would ever be done is a level of hubris that I just can't relate to. I cannot grasp and relate to the idea that we would consider things to be done. Build out is a fallacy. And when people bring it up in your community, you, you know that they don't understand what they're talking about. There never should be a, such a concept as something being built out, finished, done. That's not how cities work. That's not how humans work. That's not how, um, you know, the, the, essentially like the labor of humanity works. We are always a work in progress. Society is always a work in progress. Humanity is a work in progress. And, and I, I find this idea that, you know, not only are we not going to make any sacrifice today, we're going to enjoy all the fruits without the labor. Uh, all that will come in the future when we get to this build-out, finished condition. I find that to be like a hubris layered on top of a hubris layered on top of a hubris. And even if like, let's say somehow like, you know, they run the table and like all this works out perfect and it gets done. And, and I'm not, I'm saying that that may be a possibility, right? Like that may be, if, if, if a thousand cities try to do what Carmel's doing, one of them will be successful, right? Like someone will make this work in this way and get to some like future state where they step back and they look and like, this is like the vision we had and now it's, it's complete and it's gorgeous. Maybe some city would, would ultimately get there. I, I feel like you've got a system here where you're not going to have any confidence at all and you're not going to know that things are going bad until they actually do and do in catastrophic ways simply because of how they, they phased it all. Let me go on to this second question that I've got. And uh, this is one that I, I, I didn't get a chance to ask Aaron, but it's, it's kind of the, um, you know, I, I think one of those indicators that uh, this process that they're using here is serious and, um, and, you know, rigorous in a sense. So here's my question. Where's the return on investment analysis? You know, uh, when you uh, put in those roundabouts out on the edge of town and, you know, you like roundabouts and you get to move cars quicker. And I like roundabouts. I mean, I think traffic circles are great. I, I get it. Like, you know, I think traffic signals are about the dumbest thing in the world. Totally agreeing with you. Where's the return on investment analysis? What, 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 what are you, besides this like beautiful vision at the end of the day, um, how, you know, how, do you, how do you get a return for that investment? Where is the wealth that pays 
for that investment. When, when you look at these, you know, amenities that you're putting in and all the things that you're building, when you look at, uh, you know, the, the, all the stuff that's being built in anticipation of growth, the question becomes, how much growth do you need? How much tax base do you need to actually make good on these investments? Where's that number? I've never seen that number. And I've looked for that number. I, I, I have delved into the, the, the records. I've delved into the meeting minutes. I've delved into, uh, you know, the, the news coverage. Uh, when these things come up, like, you know, we're going to build a carousel. Uh, we're going to widen this road. Uh, we're going to do this new. Where's the return on investment analysis? And, and not just, you know, the projections. And this is actually easy stuff, right? I mean, we're, we're spending a, a million dollars here. Here's how much new tax base we need to in order to sustain that indefinitely over time. Where's, where's that? That's a simple calculation. Not only that, but where are we going back and saying, okay, we did these investments 20 years ago. Here's what occurred in the private sector as a result. How do those two things relate? How does you know, what emerged actually relate to, from a tax flow standpoint, what we have invested? Do we make money? Is that working out? Are, you know, is our theory like correct? My gut says those numbers are, would be ridiculous, that they're losing money, that, that it would be as you know, insane as any other auto-centric, spread out, decentralized, you know, completely auto-oriented suburb. That, that's my sense. Um, and in fact, I think it would even be worse because I look at a lot of the kind of over-the-top investments that they've made to do things that other cities do, you know, more, I was going to say it in a way, um, this is a, a family-friendly podcast, so I'm not going to use any curse words here, but you know, the, the halfway kind of measures that other cities do uh, that are cheaper, but just as functional. Carmel's taken those and like up them uh, many, many times. I was in a parking ramp in Carmel where they actually have like stamped, uh, you know, they actually have like brick arrows in the, <laughs> in the, in the, in the driving surface, you know, as if like people driving over, uh, you know, hand laid brick in their car, somehow getting like a higher quality of life experience. Um, you know, most cities do those things in a very functional way. Carmel has upped the ante quite a bit. Look at, look at those investments you've made and how much money have you gotten back for them? I mean, they've been around long enough to do it. Where's the rigor? Where are these numbers? You know, I don't see them anywhere. And I don't see anybody really asking it. What I see a lot of is self-affirmation. This is the vision. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. These are the things we have to do today uh, to make this work. None of them are going to involve sacrifice by you. None of them are going to involve hard decisions. This is all easy decisions. Just let us continue to borrow more money and continue to do this stuff. You'll all enjoy a higher quality of life today. And we'll make it up in the future when we reach this build-out condition. You're far enough into this experiment to actually see how's that working. How is it working? Nobody knows. Nobody's run those numbers. And in fact, the only thing that I've really seen along those lines, and, and Aaron got into the palladium a little bit. He had a bunch of reasons why that wasn't cash flowing as they projected, you know, all the, 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 the jealous people in Indianapolis, uh, you know, suppressed the donations for that. And so now it's got, okay, wh whatever. I mean, your city this is my point, right? Like humans are complex. They do weird things. They, they don't do as things are projected. You, you, you kind of have to take that into account, right? Like if you're going to be the rich suburb uh, and you, you know, you, you may have uh, to do extra kind of work uh, to build relationships with surrounding places that are much, much poorer. Right? So, so like that's, that's part of life. Like that's, when I say like things aren't predictable in the future, like I don't know what's going to happen, those are the kind of things I'm talking about. So we do have instances where, you know, we can look and say like, okay, we made this investment. Here's what was projected originally. Here's how it's worked out. The few instances of that that I've seen, nothing has worked out the way that they've suggested. They've had to borrow more money. They've had to move money from this account to that account to cash flow it because the cash is behind on what they projected. They didn't get to raise the enough money that they said, so they got to take money out of the general fund. Uh, 
These are like blinking red lights to me, combined with the lack of rigor that says there's like a rot underneath the hood. Now, I can't go underneath, like I'm not underneath the hood. And there's people underneath the hood who have emailed me and who said to me like, Chuck, things are going great. Like we got this all figured out. Um, Okay, this gets me to the third thing that I want to talk about. Um, We have this thing called the strength test. And the strength test is essentially like a way to kind of determine how's the city doing when you can't get under the hood. Um, This is inspired by uh, Nassim Taleb and his kind of reference to the, you know, code of Hammurabi. And he has this nice kind of uh, story that, that he likes to tell that I I think makes a lot of sense. He, he, he talks about how, um, you know, if an architect builds a house, the house falls down and kills the uh, owner's son, uh, Hammurabi's code would say the architect's son gets put to death. And Taleb is quick to point out, this is not uh, eye for eye retribution, right? This is not an, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth kind of, you know, you kill my son, I get to kill your son. It's not retribution. What it is, is it's basically... Uh, their way of saying, we are trusting you as an architect. We have no capacity, zero, to actually know that you are doing your job right. We have no capacity to, to see under the hood. You, you're going to know, you know what's in that foundation. You're going to know what's behind those walls. You, you're you're going to know all these things that we as the purchaser, or the, the person hiring you, uh, are hiring you based on like your expertise, your knowledge, your trustworthiness. We have no way of knowing if you're doing your job right or not until it's too late. And so we can trust you um, or we can do what like modern Americans have done. And I think, you know, <laughs> at, at tremendous cost without a whole lot of benefit, hire all these like building inspectors and building code officials uh, to, you know, give the veneer of the notion that these places are being well inspected. Or we can just say, you know, if it doesn't work, if you have been negligent and something happens, uh, you know, you're, you're going to pay the same price that the owner pays. You, like, you have skin in the game, right? You have skin in the game. And so what Hammurabi's code is at the end of the day is an acknowledgement that, uh, you know, we can never really be certain to know what the, you know, the people running something know. We'll never have the same level of intimate knowledge that they do. Let me put this in in Carmel's terms. Um, Nobody listening to this podcast today, besides, you know, people at City Hall who are listening to this podcast, um, nobody listening to this podcast today is going to know what's going on in City Hall in the spreadsheets, you know, in the meetings, all that. None of us are going to have that level of knowledge. What we have to do is we have to have heuristics. We have to have um, like proxies to tell us, you know, does this process seem correct? Does this process seem like it's working out right? Is is this exhibiting the kind of things that we think should be happening uh, in a place that is being run? successfully where where this kind of mentality we make these huge bets up front we're going to see them pay off in the future okay if you were going to do that what types of things would we expect to see and i I wrote down five of them here um number one debt being retired not being rolled over and put into new debt issuances and and never really retired but debt being retired is that happening i don't think it is that what i've seen it's not happening number two return on investment analysis where are those return on investment analysis? Where are the backward looking? Here's what our projections were at the time. Here's what's actually happened. Uh, kind of introspection. And when it didn't work out, why? And what are we changing about what we're doing in the future to make sure that um, this is being done correctly? Um, number three, hyper-transparency and a challenging of assumptions. W- w- where's the... I realize that there are naysayers and I realize that there's people, you know, who are standing up, you know, calling foul on this. Where in the official process is this? Where is the kind of hyper transparency? We here at Strong Towns, I, I often think, 
you know, I have days where I'll wake up and I'll be like, wow, we're doing such good work. I'm so confident about the path we're going. And then a week later, like some number won't come in right or some like bit of data that we're tracking won't turn out the way I did. And I lose all my confidence. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Are we screwing something up? Are we not doing this right? Like what's going on? What I have done, what we do here is we're hyper transparent with our numbers. Every single month we report uh, all these stats about how we're doing to our board. Um, we share them internally. Everybody in our organization sees them. We have a, a group of people who advise us um, who get those numbers as well as they come out. The same exact thing. Um, it, this is essentially us like laying bare the laundry, saying, you know, go through it, like r rifle through it, you know, like look at this stuff. It is something, you know, is something amiss? Um, where is this in Carmel? Where are the people who are challenging the assumptions? Where's the level of hyper-transparency? And by hyper-transparency, I mean not just doing the things that you're required to do, but actually going the extra step to say, here are the reasons why you should be worried about this. We've thought of these reasons, and here's how we're taking steps to address them. Where is that? I don't see that anywhere. Number four, leadership turnover with continuity. Now, you've not had real leadership turnover at the top. The, the mayor has been mayor for a long, long time. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see, is there a continuity of policy once this mayor is gone? Aaron seemed to suggest that there wouldn't be, that that. Carmel today is kind of a cult of personality, uh, that this is the vision of one person. As long as that person's there, the vision will go forward. And when that person leaves, it's likely to be questioned and reexamined. That doesn't seem very consistent to me with the idea of, you know, getting all the goodies today and then having all the things that have to come to fruition in the future to make it work happen decades later. If this is going to be a program that works, you should have turnover of high-level decision-makers, yet have a continuity of vision. In other words, if you've got to be all in on this vision in order to make it work, and you've got to stick through that, not only when you get the goodies, but also when things start to get difficult, where's the people that are going to see that through? Is that just one person, or are there multiple people? Is there a continuity of vision? I don't see that. And then five, uh, the de you know, demonstrate to me that the details are being managed, that this isn't just you know big flashy stuff we're doing. Uh, Carmel does the big and flashy really well. Um, I, in my, I, I've been there once. Um, I've from a distance been fascinated with the things they've done since I was there. Um, my 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 time on the ground there. Uh, Led, led me to think that they were not doing the details well. And I'll give, you, I'll give you one little example. And I'm sure that people there would push back on this one. That's fine. You have a right to. Um, there's one spot there in the city where they have this uh, like reflecting pool. This, this huge, it's on the edge of a road. It's in a weird spot. But it's like, you know, <laughs> I wrote this down. <laughs> I'll give you what I wrote, what I wrote down when I was writing about Carmel, I said, Carmel's like Robert Moses plus a Wall Street hedge fund plus an AICP planner with a crash course in new urbanism all got together to build a city. <laughs> I feel like, you know, you've got this kind of weirdly placed, uh, you know, reflecting pool. Anyway, I was out walking by this and there were tiles kind of dislocated, things falling apart on it. It wasn't that old. Um, you know, the, the landscaping around it was not being well taken care of. And I'm like, th this is a central feature, uh, you know, of a, of a, of a, of a huge investment um, designed to get people out here. Uh, where's the attention to detail? Like, wh where's the kind of like, in, you know, where's the level of maintenance and follow-up commensurate with this investment? I didn't see it. And I, and I saw that in multiple, multiple places. Understand, it's very easy to go out and build things that are big and flashy. It's very easy to do this, especially today, especially if you're a wealthy suburb. You can borrow money. 
you can go out and do it. You can spread that money over a long period of time. You can tax, you know, people at low rates. You can roll that debt over multiple times. You, you can make this like relatively painless, uh, particularly for a very affluent population. It is a much different thing than to maintain that, to take care of it, to do the basic upkeep. But the basic upkeep is what actually makes it work. That's where this, that's, that's where like, you know, if you're, if you're serious, that's what I would expect to see. And I was not seeing it in Carmel. I was seeing, you know, I, I've, I've read and I've seen them going out and, you know, sweeping up the streets and, and you know, power washing uh, roundabouts and different things. Great, you know, big flashy, I get it. Where's a little attention to detail? where's the obsession over those details? It doesn't seem to be there. These are red flags to me combined with the, the phasing, the fact that we get the goodies now and we have the sacrifice later, uh, the idea that there's no ROI analysis. It's these little things that I would expect to see as indicators that told me that someone's actually like doing the things that need to be done to make this work that I don't see that stripped me of the confidence that this is going to end up going well. Let me give you the last thing. And, and, and you know, I, 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 th- I think that this is actually perhaps ultimately going to be the most important one. Um, it was one that Aaron brought up, but then kind of, you know, skipped over. And I, I get it. I mean, it's, it's the hard one, right? this idea of can Carmel reinvent itself someday. Aaron did a really good job, and I applaud him, for kind of laying out the standard trajectory of the suburbs. He, he delivered the Strong Towns narrative in a way that I thought, you know, that that's perfect. I'm actually flattered. If you're able to describe it in that way, um, you know, a very intelligent guy able to like describe this in this way. I feel like we've done a, a huge service to society. If, if people can go out there and talk about uh, suburban development in, in the way that Aaron did, I'm like, okay, we, we're, we're winning. Our narrative is getting out there. This idea that you build things today, it's all new. As long as you're continuing to grow, you've got cash. Um, it only when the maintenance starts to come into effect, when things start to age, you got to go out and fix it. Now you have a problem because you don't have enough wealth, enough tax base to actually take care of that stuff. And, and what Aaron described is when Carmel gets to that point, can it reinvent itself? And he left it as an open question. He left it as a, you know, as an open question. And, and I think it is an open question. Like, can they do that? Um, let me rephrase that in a way, to kind of tie it in with the earlier conversation. When Carmel reaches build out (laughs) and things start to age, what comes next? What comes next? Um, I think in the ideal scenario, what you've done is you've created such a wonderful, beautiful, marvelous place with all the amenities and all the things that anybody would ever want, competing with all the great cities around the world so that Carmel is, you know, attracts like the top talent, the wealthiest people, the, the, you know, the best, the best among us want to move to this great city of Carmel. And the fact that they want to be there the elevated property values that come with that, the, you know, all the kind of wealth of the community is able to indefinitely sustain uh, all of the amenities that have been built. That I think is like the ideal scenario. And let's just posit that that's possible, right? I I don't think that that's possible, um, you know, for all the reasons I've laid out. Like, I don't think that's the trajectory they're on. And I don't think that's possible, but, but, but let's say that they actually get to that point. Like let's posit that. Think about what happens next. Over time in an idealized state, uh, karma will become kind of some static environment where essentially, uh, wealthy people will continue to live there, uh, continue to pay taxes at you know, whatever decent rate they're doing in order to maintain all the stuff that they built. Uh, this will go on. Things will degrade and decline, but the reinvestment will happen. People will be committed to the city. 
There will be no huge like social upheavals. There'll be no change in uh, you know the desirability of of a living pattern. Uh, there will be no uh, you know big big kind of transformative things that take place that would upset that balance that they've got in place. And that goes on and on and on. I find that completely unrealistic. I find that com- 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 completely un... I mean, <laughs> how much have cities changed in the last 30 years? You know, this accelerating pace of change all around us. Um, you know, you, you look out in the future and you say, is, is that possible? I don't think it is. And so what happens is that Carmel is going to have to reinvent itself. It is going to have to adapt and change. It is going to have to have a version, you know, and if, if we call this version of Carmel 1.0, it's going to have to have a version 2.0. What does that look like? What does that look like? And here's the, here's the interesting thing. We can look at other suburbs that have gone through this that have had a version 1.0. And then when they go to version 2.0, what we see is that that transition does not work. That transition does not work very well. Because everything that Carmel's building right now, I I, I was in their like, you know, core kind of walkable, big condo unit kind of area. And these were all buildings that were built like in a very short period of time of each other. They were built in a massive scale uh, to a finished state. It's all done. And when we get out 30 years from now, uh, and all the little gaskets around the windows start to go bad, and that siding needs to be fixed on these huge buildings, um, and the sidewalks start to crack and show their age. It's, that's all going to happen all at the same time, all at once, all in the same place. Okay, well, if Carmel stays uh, a city of rich, committed people uh, who you know are going to say, let's let's... Let's put our money and reinvest that money into maintaining this building. Um, you know, we're not going to get the money out. You, you, you generally don't, don't get a payoff from maintenance, right? Maintenance is just money you spend to keep from going backward. Um, but we're committed to this place. We like this place. It's got great amenities. We're going to, you know, see it through. We're going to invest the money that it takes to maintain this stuff um, just because we, we like it, right? Just because we, we think it's great. That's going to happen subdivision after subdivision, place after place, uh, you know, development after development. I, I, I don't think so. There's no other place in human history where that has happened. The, 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 the number of instances of places that have had a, a, a static condition like that, um, just, they don't exist. They're, they're, they're nowhere. What has always had to happen to places that survive is that they have to start to evolve and change. When you go do that maintenance, you can't merely just fix the siding. You actually have to change the building in some way where you get more value out of it. In that neighborhood of single-family homes, when they all built at the same time, and, and you project out in the future, and they all start to fail at the same time. Everybody's roof goes bad at the same time. Everybody's driveway goes bad at the same time. All their appliances fail at the same time, and there's this downward pressure. What generally happens is that the affluent people move out. The affluent people leave. They leave to places that are, in a sense, like a better investment. And in suburbs that are static, where we use zoning and modern finance and all the like ridiculous tools of making places static to lock these places into place, what we see is that they tend to stagnate over time. They tend to not perform well. Historically, places out on the edge that are going from version 1.0 to version 2.0, see a level of thickening up, a level of intensification. My roof is failed. I need to fix my roof. I don't have the money to fix my roof. That's just maintenance. I'm not going to get a return out of that. So what I do is I convert uh, that spare bedroom of my house. I do an addition. I convert that into an apartment. Uh, I you know, get a loan to build that apartment and to fix my roof. And then I use the rent from that apartment to pay back that loan. That's generally like how it works. That's not how it's going to work in Carmel. How will it work in Carmel? I don't know. Because generally, the people most resistant to what I would call thickening up, 
to, to the natural evolution and change of a place are the most affluent. And so what Carmel has built is an environment that either works or fails. It's a binary outcome. And if it works, it's going to get to a static state position where it must keep, <laughs> despite decline and neglect and a lowering of return on investment and, and, and you know just a shift to general maintenance, it must keep wealthy people there. If it works, and I think that that is a long, long shot, but if it works, it gets to a place where it must depend forevermore, world without end, on having a high concentration of wealthy people in one place to keep it going. Or it has to invite other people in and start to evolve and change. And when it starts to evolve, the, the, the dynamics of that, the city is wired to resist. Wired to resist. I am not a fan. And I think the reason why uh, I, I found it, you know, <sighs> important to kind of push back on this is that I, I, I do think that Carmel is held up as a model in some ways for how suburbs should develop. And even Aaron said, like, you know, to an extent, like, this is not a replicable model. Like, if, if every suburb in Indianapolis said, we're going to follow the Carmel model, um, you know, it, it would be a, a, a race to bankruptcy, right? It's, it's a little bit like, you know, we, <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was a good study, and I can't remember the, the I can't cite it right now off the top of my head, but I, there was a study about um, convention centers and cities building convention centers and how, you know, it started out, a, a couple of cities built convention centers and they went really, really well, um, you know, they were able to attract people. It was a, something new and different, and, and this is really great. And cities saw that, and more cities said, you know, we're going to have a convention center, and then we're going to have a convention center. And pretty soon, there's convention centers in little podunk towns like mine, uh, where it's like, you know, we can attract tourists to come in, or we can attract, you know, businesses to come in and hold their conventions here. And then what winds up is that, you know, there's so many convention centers out there, nobody makes any money with them. They're all losers. And we have to subsidize the businesses to come here and then lie to ourselves with some, you know, wacky economic development math to say, you know, sure, we gave this conference, you know, $200,000, but the people who came here spent $400,000, you know, as if somehow that money spent, you know, ends up, you know, resulting in a you 50% know, tax rate to reimburse this. It's just stupid. This is dumb math, you know? Um, I, I look at this as a strategy that nobody should copy. Contrary to that, the strong towns approach is something everybody can do. If you're a tiny town, struggling, no money, broke, uh, you know, you can, you can do a strong towns approach today and start to build wealth and build success. If you're a mid-sized town, if you're a suburb, if you're a major city, you have the capacity to start to make strong towns type decisions, make strong towns types investments, start to build in a way that will make you successful over time. Time tested, historic, low risk, high reward. This is a strategy that everybody can follow. Carmel is not. And, and I think it, it is... I, I think it is a horrible bet. If, if I had to, uh, you know, invest my money today, I, I would never put it into Carmel. I, I, I think that it is on, let me put it this way. If you said I can bet on a place for the next 20 years, uh, maybe Carmel. If you said the next 10 years, sure, I, 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 I could bet on Carmel for the next 10 years. But if you said, uh, you know, bet on a place and we're not going to give you your money back for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, and you're essentially going to be locked into this place, you and its future are going to be bound. <laughs> I, I take the poor city today that's dedicated to a strong towns approach over Carmel any day, any day, any day. We need to start building strong towns. We need to be making small incremental investments over a broad area over a long period of time. 
We need to focus on our core blocks, our core neighborhoods. We need to focus on building wealth in our places and making quality investments that actually improve our balance sheet. We need to be rigorous about it. We need to do the math. We need to, we need to uh, state our assumptions with wicked, open transparency. And then we need to be rigorous on ourselves about how those assumptions work out. We need to iterate. We need to learn from our mistakes. And, and, and we need to actually be willing to do hard things today that will pay off in the future, as opposed to be seduced by I think like the American, uh, you know, modern mindset of let's have it all today and then self-delude ourselves into thinking that somehow, you know, all the sacrifice and all the hard work and all the payoff, you know, need all all the things needed to to make this work will happen in the future and someone else is going to steward that in. I, I find Carmel to be irresponsible at its core. And the biggest fear that I have about it is that somehow this will become a model that other places will want to follow, that other places will want to uh, learn from and replicate. I, I don't think there's hardly anything worth replicating in Carmel. I don't. I think we need to get serious as a nation about building strong towns. I think we need to get rigorous. I think we need to get going on it. And Fine, Carmel, you know, go do your thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a great experiment, and we'll see how it works out. If I'm Indiana, uh, I, I, my collective social consciousness says there will never be a Carmel bailout. I mean, I basically would tell them, like, you're all in. There will never be a Carmel bailout. Because if we see one thing and one thing clear from, you know, Places where wealthy people get in, uh, you know, past their skis, they come looking for the bailout and they've got the connections. Uh, they've got the wherewithal to make it happen. To me, if I'm in Indianapolis, if I'm in one of these other suburbs, the thing that I'm starting to build now as the decades go on is essentially a, a no caramel bailout policy. If you want to take this huge bet, you are on your own. Go out and build strong towns. There, there's no, I mean, this is a thing like, the, there's no downside to doing it like this. The, the only downside is that you don't get to live this illusion of wealth today. And if you want the illusion of wealth, I mean, if, if you're comfortable with that, I, there's not much I can do for you, right? If, you, if you're comfortable with the illusion of wealth, go buy a huge house, go buy a huge car, load up on debt, and just like max out your credit cards and just live it, like do it, you know, die with the greatest amount of debt. Go. I mean, there's a, there's a trend of thought in America that says like, that's what we should do. To me, that's what Carmel is. That's what Carmel is. But if you are more serious about life, if you want to live a, a, a prudent, intentional, meaningful life, one where, you know, yes, you're going to enjoy the fruits of your labor, but it's going to be because you've been prudent, because you've done the hard work, because you've like forsaken the easy path and actually done the hard things to build wealth and, and, and to make something that is stable and viable and lasts. And, and to go back to that Talmud quote, to do the work of today, knowing that it's not your responsibility to finish. It's just your responsibility to pass it on in a better condition than what you got it. If that's your point of view, then you're a strong town's advocate. Get out there and start doing it. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Back at you with some member drive stuff here shortly. Take care everybody. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city?
is not always open. But if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.